Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Blizzy, an activist and cause marketer who's passionate about social impact and sustainability. Today, we get to cover a subject that is really near and dear to my heart, education and access to higher education. Education has always been important to me personally, even as I struggled through the fourth grade with an impossible professor, and even in high school when I had some personal struggles. A few people really helped me to get through in ways that I will always remember. And now I'm only one quarter away from completing my MBA at Santa Clara University. My point is this, many of us encounter bumps on the road that can derail us. We encounter problems of self-doubt, and we may not have the money we need to pursue the education we want and deserve. These problems exist all around the globe. And in Africa, where we will focus our discussion today, serious systemic problems prevent talented young people from gaining the opportunities that we take for granted in the West. Those that do gain access may not be able to fund the education they deserve. So what do they do? Joining us today is someone who seeks to solve that problem. Lydia Camunto Bosire, an accomplished academic and Oxford-educated doctor of philosophy and politics. Lydia is a founder and CEO of 8B Education Investments, a financial and education technology platform that specializes in lending to African students so they can attend world-class global universities and succeed. As a Kenyan national, Lydia brings over 18 years of work experience focused on issues of international politics, development, and human rights. Prior to founding 8B, Lydia worked at the United Nations, the World Bank, and leading global nonprofits. Lydia, it is an honor to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much, Karina. Tell us about your journey from Kenya to the University of Oxford. So, Karina, that path was made possible by a lot, a lot of luck. I would wish that every ambitious young Kenyan or African had the same luck, uh, but that's not always the case. My story begins, uh, I was born in Kenya, in Kisi, in Western Kenya, and I had the fortune to attend one of the leading high schools in the country. At the end of high school, I knew of a girl from the high school who had gone to something called the United World Colleges. And that made real the idea of global education to me. And then I had this chance encounters, and this is where my luck begins, chance encounters with information that enabled me to realize this idea that I could study in a global university. So I got to know that this girl was studying in this global high school. And then I happened to see a newspaper classified ad, if you remember those, that uh, was announcing that very scholarship uh, to that high school, that this girl that I happened to know. One thing led to another. I applied and out of the hundreds of applicants uh, for the scholarship, I was one of the two that got it for the United World Colleges. 
I went to a school in Wales that was in a Hogwarts style castle that <laughs> was absolutely fantastic. Um, it is one of the schools that actually invented the International Baccalaureate way back in the 60s in order to enable global education. And so to have the fortune to be there was absolutely amazing. But what that did for my journey, Corina, is that it opened up all these possibilities for me because once I was there, then global universities, so this was a fifth and sixth form school, global universities came there to recruit students for their freshman class. And so that's how I ended up in Cornell. I did not know where Cornell was and I met the admissions dean when they visited this high school. Uh, it sounded like an interesting place. New York always sounded like a good place to go. Little did I know that it's actually not in New York, it's <laughs> in a village very far away. Uh, but I, that's how I ended up in Cornell. And while in Cornell, I studied government and international relations, worked in a number of global organizations, including the UN in the health section, um, the UNFPA and the World Health Organization, went off to Oxford, initially fully funded, and then after that, not. Um, and I'm sure we're going to get into that a little bit later, yeah, I mean, but this is when this, the, the building blocks of what I'm currently doing with HB were formed. But that, I hope, gives you a sweeping version, a short version of the story from Kenya to Oxford. Well, it certainly does. Um, I mean, you brought up a few things that got me chuckling along the way. I mean, people outside of the United States might think of New York as all of it is New York City, much as they think California, where I live, is all Baywatch <laughs> or all beaches and really sunny days, whereas up in the northern side of the state, it can be cooler. I'm reminded of a quote by Mark Twain, which was, the coldest winter of my life was a summer in San Francisco. I may be <laughs> paraphrasing like that, but it literally is one of those experiences where people come from afar dressed in their shorts and, you know, flip-flops and they have to go into a local shop and buy a sweatshirt and sweatpants because they're freezing. Exactly. So going from somewhere like Kenya, which is a much different climate to upstate New York, I mean, what was that like for you to, as far as a cultural experience going from such different places? Did it take you time to adjust and, and how did you do that? So I think it helped that I had spent two years in Wales before coming to Ithaca. So where my international high school was, was another village. It's this teeny little place called Flantwich Major. You've never heard of it unless you've been there for tourism reasons. And it was fairly unpleasant weather-wise. There was a perpetual grayness there. For the first time, I had a massive coat. And when I came to Cornell, it felt like a continuation of that, except that in Cornell, it felt like the winters lasted six months, uh, which I'm sure they didn't, but it did feel that way. What will make you laugh Corina, is that after I had finished Cornell and worked in New York and worked in Switzerland and worked and gone to Oxford and uh, gone back to New York City, my now husband, who I also met while I was in Cornell, moved to the Finger Lakes. And the Finger Lakes is now my home, despite my initially thinking that it's something I would do for exactly as long as it took to get a Cornell degree and vanish. Mm -hmm. um, I, I found myself coming back. And so I spent the pandemic time up here in the Finger Lakes and it was fantastic and calm and 
winter was lovely as opposed to oppressive. And, you know, one's perspective changes. As we talk a little bit about your journey over the years, you mentioned going to Oxford for your master's and then funding running out. So let's talk about that, what that experience was, and then how you ultimately got through because you did end up successfully graduating with a PhD, right? So let's talk about that. So I think that story actually begins before Oxford. The story begins when I finished my first degree in Cornell and was looking to apply into a master's program. That's the first time when I realized that funding can be an issue. And it sounds frivolous to say that, but after getting the initial scholarship to go to the United World Colleges and subsequently to Cornell, it appeared to me because Cornell was a well-resourced place that you simply needed to apply yourself to it and resources would appear. If you have initiative, someone has money to enable you to do what you wanted to do. So when I applied for grad school, my expectation was that it would be funded. This was initially on the back of my first degree in Cornell. And my first um, major rejection was from Harvard School of Public Health, where I had applied for an MPH and received an offer with zero funding. I thought it was laughable because how could they imagine that a Kenyan would afford to attend? But that swiftly became something that I became accustomed to. So in the years between my Cornell degrees, because I then did on the back of my bachelor's, I did a master's still funded by Cornell. On the back of those degrees between that and going to Oxford, I made it a routine to apply to grad school because I wanted to go on to another degree to do a PhD, for example, and I was routinely rejected for the funding. And what that taught me was that there was a problem there. When I finally got an offer to Oxford for a second master's, that was funded for the first year and subsequently not funded. So how did I address that, you asked? So I contorted myself into a pretzel. I changed colleges. Oxford is organized in colleges. So I moved from one to another that I had a bit more money. I took on two jobs, one consulting back with a UN entity that I was with and one consulting for a philanthropist in London. And I did the kinds of things that you do, except you normally do those things when you are an undergrad and you're flipping burgers and you're doing seven other things. When you're doing your research, You don't want to be focused on the research, except if you can't pay for it, in which case you have to find time to do your PhD research and also find time to do the kind of work that pays the bills. But those experiences, Corinna, starting from the Cornell time when my application to Harvard was unfunded and leading on to my second year and onwards in Oxford not being funded, those experiences put firmly in my parking lot, the idea that there was a real problem here that I needed to have a hand in solving. And so after the years of working across the multilateral system that I was so lucky to have, I I felt the time was right. I was able to then shift fully into this thing that had been baking for quite some time. And so I feel like it's one of those things that you know you have to do something about. You can't really continue ignoring it. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's how I felt when I started um, HB Education Investments. Wow. So thinking through the struggles that I personally had getting my undergrad or ultimately choosing not to go to graduate school because of funding issues and realizing that the path I wanted to pursue, which was archaeology, 
wasn't one that had a whole heck of a lot of funding behind it. Um, it wasn't like going into biotechnology or something else. It was more like if you're independently wealthy and you want to study something like this, or if you're comfortable taking on a hundred thousand dollars in loans, go ahead. So yeah. no, I, 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 yeah, you're so right on that. So I do not at all wish to minimize the struggle that US or OECD students face when they are, or, or students from developed nations also face when they are looking to finance their education. So, you know, European students typically have it cheap or free. American uh, higher education is quite pricey. What mm -hmm. I do admire about the American system is that in its nooks and crannies, there are solutions for students. And you might, it might, tie your hands in some ways, mm -hmm. the option is there. My frustration when I was in my second year in Oxford was that nobody could bank on my direction of travel. Nobody mm. was going to, nobody could give me a loan. There was nobody who could say, here you are, an African woman in Oxford. We don't have enough of you. I can bet on your pathway of travel. You will end up having a good job for sure. You will be able to pay this back. That, that faith just isn't there. We don't have a system for that. In the mm -hmm. US, you do have it and it might have, uh, it, it fails in a number of ways, but there, it's there on the whole. It can be improved, but you have something to work with. When you're right. talking about students coming from places like where I come from, that option doesn't exist. What I would wish for African students isn't to have them replicate the U.S. system, which is not possible. It's to have them have something approximately um, similar to what students from the Indian subcontinent have, which is mm -hmm. you're going to, I recall, I'll tell you as an anecdote, I was um I went for my reunion for my UK high school uh, not long ago, and uh, we went for tea, which is what you do uh, in in you know small uh, uh, cafes. And you know, here was a lovely young student from the Indian subcontinent, and she was studying food anthropology at the School of Oriental and African Studies, SOAS, um, in London. And as I typically do, and I've always done this ever since my own funding uh, challenges, I asked her about herself and what she's studying, and I asked her if she doesn't mind telling me how she was funding for her education. She said, oh, I went into a bank and got a loan to study food anthropology. Yes, I did. And that's what I would love. The autonomy that it gives you mm -hmm. to know that you could pursue any direction you would like. And people can bank on it because when you are determined, ambitious, high achieving, you will do well. Mm -hmm. um, that's what I would wish. But I also have a bigger point behind this. It, isn't, it doesn't stop at the individual. When you come from the kinds of societies that have leadership that still has many deficits, where the capacity of institutions isn't there and therefore stewardship of that institution depends on people and the importance that those people have the best access to education, the best networks, the capacity to mobilize capital, the capacity to get things done. And that, for better or worse, comes with high quality education. Every society has that. And mm -hmm. I am wishing that for African countries who cannot afford to finance it themselves and hopefully what we're building can help contribute to that vision. So is 8B also working to provide more of the opportunities to students that were in your situation where you felt like you won the lottery, getting the seats to go to another country and further your studies in high school and into college? Yeah. So ultimately, it is a product that is solving what we see as a market failure. And the market failure is there is demand, but there is no supply. 
there is demand of financing. Students who come from the village where I was raised are by hook and crook doing what it takes to get into NYU and then they don't have the money to attend. That is demand. Um, the providers of resources either don't see the size of the African market, so it's our job to explain just what that market size looks like, or they are caught up in concerns around brain drain. What does it look like if we're taking the best and the brightest out of the African continent? And we find it our job to tell them actually there is more where those came from. So, you know, please, you should be funding when students are smart and they're getting into the places, their first choice universities, you should be funding them to go there because that creates space and creates more breathing room, if you will, in the university system at home, which actually doesn't have enough capacity, right? So there's a whole range of reasons why that is important. And we find ourselves letting the market and the potential investors and supporters of this know what that space looks like. And so we are then agnostic about where the student came from. Is a student already having a degree from Cornell and wanting to get another one from Cornell and now has no money? That is just as capable a student as a student who is coming fresh uh, off University of Nairobi and wanting to come for a master's in NYU. And that is just as exciting as someone who's coming from another country, which is in the OECD, Germany, and coming for their MBA in Babson, right? The consistency is that they're coming, they're originally from African countries, and they, by virtue of that definition, do not have other financial instruments that are taking care of their specific needs, are underwriting for their specific type of risk that they're assumed to present, and that's the gap that we feel specifically people that are international students tend to pay a much higher rate for the education they're receiving. And that isn't always the case. I believe private institutions have different um, metrics and different systems by which um, they initiate that, let's say, international school markup. But I recall that even when I was going to community college um, in Cupertino at De Anza, that I was paying a fee that was something like one-tenth that of the international students that were coming in. And so international students were literally paying, you know, the same rate that I might pay to go to Stanford just to come to a community college. And so I wanted to understand from your perspective, you know, what portion of the problem that poses versus the other, because I, I would venture to guess that institutions like banks partially look down on that loan because of the fact that it could be so much more expensive than funding the education of an American student. Absolutely. And I think you're right on that. So the way we think about that is that we're not funding the full ride, the ticket price, if you will, the sticker price of an education. Uh, the students that we're funding, we're requiring that there is some skin in the game from the university. And that means partial funding already. Mm -hmm. And that then reduces the revenue expectation that the, the schools are having from the international schools. Because in, uh, I have a friend who is a dean of a graduate school, a, a, big, state, uh, a big state school in New York. And uh, when COVID started, he told me that part of his crisis was that his international enrollment had dropped by 48%. And that was dismal because those students were paying three times the rate of domestic students. And the cost of attending 
is somewhere around the domestic student price and maybe a little bit more, but somewhere around there. And the foreign students help subsidize the domestic students so they can get more domestic students on the back of each international student. So mm. the crisis was compounded for him because not only did he have less revenue for domestic students, he also then had some classes he couldn't offer. Some of the STEM, the, the science, technology, engineering, uh, computer science type classes that they would have that would be over 80% foreign students were not going to be offered. There just wouldn't be enough students uh, to be able to offer those classes at a grad mm -hmm. school level. So the point that you make is really important about the differential in tuition. But the way we address it is by not being with just simply, it's very high risk. So when we're doing the underwriting, the person who needs the full ticket price is just going to come up at such a high risk, they cannot get funding from us. And so that what that does is it incentivizes them to think about how much do they want this diversity versus the revenue, right? Mm -hmm. And if they want the diversity, they're going to have to reduce their revenue expectation. I mean, I would just love for you to tell a story, walk us through like a particular case study. One of the students I'm really proud of um, in terms of an example. And we have a student who just graduated with an MPH from Boston mm. University uh, School of Public Health. She studied epidemiology and biostatistics as an MPH. She's from Tanzania. Her name is Nifasha. And she's now working in that field in addition um, to having interned at Mass General when she was in Boston to wow. be able to support that journey for a Tanzanian young woman to be in this field that is so timely right now, for me, speaks to the global nature of human capital and the, the beauty of African talent, exceptional African professionals being part of that story. Because in a variety of fields, these are the people who will rise to the top and make transformations in their societies. I strongly believe that. So we, we love to be supporting these journeys because they're already journeys of excellence uh, mm -hmm. and we are playing a very, very small part. But to remove that hustle of, oh, should I be deferring this term? Should I not be enrolling? Should I, to be able to be part of smoothing that part, mm -hmm. uh, that path rather, um, is something we're really grateful to be, to be able to do. Well, I think that's a beautiful story. And um, one of the things I wanted to touch back on is something you mentioned earlier, because I don't know that a lay audience has really heard the terminology brain drain. So I wondered if you could just expand on that a little bit so people understand what you're talking about when it comes to this. Why don't you talk about that for a moment? No, thanks, Karina. Um, brain drain is such an interesting term. So it used to be that once upon a time at independence in, in the 1960s, there was a handful of doctors in the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and another handful of dozen uh, professionals in you know, country X and country Y. And what that did is to create this sense of scarcity about African talent, that there mm. just isn't enough of them. So if you attract them to come to the US, you're going to leave villages upon villages without help, right? That idea became conflated with, and I think this is unfortunate, with generally the global mobility of African talent, including students. Those are very different facets of mobility. One is trained professionals who may be being counted upon for particular sectors, and this is true today for 
African nurses from English-speaking African countries receiving visa privileges to go to places like the UK or the US and elsewhere. Um, so that, that genre of mobility becomes um, entwined with and therefore leads to bad argument in conversation when it's combined with student mobility. So the young future Marie Curie who is topping her chemistry class in village school Y, who just managed to get an offer in Caltech or in BU. And we look at both as instances of draining, that is really a very visual term, the mm -hmm. African continent of talent. And I struggle with that. And since I work in the student space, let me focus on that for a second, and then I'll go to the trained professional point for a second. In the student space, when we mobilize the language of brain drain, what we do is to constrain the choices of very smart students who should be part of global innovation ecosystems. The way I think about it and talked about this in a number of places because it frustrates me, nobody looks at the head of Alphabet, Sundar Pichai, and says, what a terrible brain drain for India. He should be back home solving technology problems. But that's the lens from which we look at the African talent that is in the similar space. What is true about India is that we have come to expect that you know, the next Sundar is going to be instrumental in building global cloud computing. And there's many, many more where they come from. So we are, you know, here, let, no wonder my, my young friend in London could go into a, a bank in Delhi and get money to go pursue whatever her dream is, because everybody knows there is more of her where she comes from. Mm -hmm. But for the African continent, the concern is that there is not enough when actually empirically it's simply not true. So that makes it harder to make the case at the grant level. It makes it impossible to make the case uh, in other spaces where people want to be demonstrating African concern in a manner that is actually detrimental to mm -hmm. those smart Africans who should be you know, going into the world and doing their part. So the way I summarize it, I, I wrote an article by invitation recently on the Africa report on this. I think there are three big ways to think about the mobility of smart African students. Number one, concern about it has an underlying assumption that there isn't enough smart talent on the African continent. And that's simply not true because mm -hmm. we now have, when I was graduating high school, I had to wait two years before I could enroll in university if I had stayed and not obtained the scholarship that I got because there isn't enough space. We have to like space out the students and there is a mm -hmm. two year lag period. Um, and therefore my leaving actually opened up my space for another smart student to go to university. So th there is that, uh, the fact that the, you know, the empirics on the continent is that the, the numbers are there, the, the data doesn't back up the concern and it's detrimental. So if we can address that, I, I hope that uh, the term brain drain can be put to rest, uh, hopefully sooner than later. Well, I was honestly surprised that it even existed in this context. I find it personally very difficult to separate that concept from a blatant racist remark. It's as if, you know, we are essentially saying people from another space are somehow lesser. They don't have as much talent. They don't have as much of this or as much of that. It's so difficult for me to hear it by reference to an entire continent of people that I, I find it quite frankly offensive. It's an offensive term. Um, so I think what people who work in this space are trying to push, and that's something that I find myself trying to encourage in conversation, is 
brain circulation. We have all been celebrating the last few weeks that the head of the World Trade Organization, a vital, vital entity in this time of vaccine nationalism and trade wars, and we need multilateral solutions for that. The head of that that has recently been appointed is a Nigerian woman. We Mm -hmm. celebrate her in her 60s heading the World Trade Organization, but her journey started with her going to Harvard for undergraduate, going to MIT for her PhD, working at the Mm. World Bank, being part of a global brain circulation. Her Nigerian experience is part of the richness that she brings in every policy room that she's in. So we cannot vilify that earlier move from Nigeria to Harvard and MIT and to the World Bank and that network that she built we cannot vilify that and then celebrate this outcome, which is, oh, look, right. you know, African woman heading the World Trade Organization. There is a bit of a disconnect there. Um, and I, I, I worry that part of that is because of the narrative that the media typically has had of the African continent. And that has had me very frustrated as a person who finds myself in many occasions as the only African or the, you know, mm-hmm. the first African doing this or the other. And the narrative is one where Africa is, is a hotbed for war and disease, right? We don't really think about Africa innovation and the fact that to your point, there are, you know, per square kilometer, there are as many potential smart kids on the African continent as they are in the, you Absolutely. know, in, in, in any other country in the world. That's just objectively the way it is. Uh, but the capacity to match that ability and that potential with resources and to enable it to be realized is, mm-hmm. is the big gap. And that's where we entities like us step in. But we see ourselves as part of a broader symphony of solutions. I mean, by the time we are coming into, into this space, there's already primary education and secondary education and, and literacy and, and so many other things that must already be in place. But all those things To one side, the reality is that the African continent is endowed with just as much human potential as elsewhere. And it's unfortunate when the narrative suggests that it's not. So we hope that by having more Ngozi Okonjo Iwela's younger versions of her striding into every university that they can get into, we will over time reduce that concern that this is a place that doesn't have that smart, that capacity. Well, I think that as we continue this forward, as more people of different straits from different backgrounds gain access to education, gain access to world-class resources, that we will shift that tide. But I I think you're absolutely right. There's essentially a systemic breakdown. There aren't enough resources if you feel if you have to feel like you won the lottery to go to university. There's a problem and that needs to be addressed. There needs to be an improvement of resources endemic to the African continent and also here in the States in communities where there aren't as many educational resources, where you have children going to school and there's, you know, 60 in a room when the teachers who teach them say, you know, I really need to have my class size shrink to be able to give the quality education needed to these kids. And we see this time and again that there, it's almost like we run through these periods where everything gets stripped to the bone. And then it, you know, you need to start building back because you've stripped it to the bone. And then suddenly, you know, taxes aren't approved and you get stripped to the bone again. You build it back, strip to the bone, build it back. And that's yeah. essentially the forever status of the United States public school system. Now in Africa, I know it's got to be different. It, and there are probably systemic challenges that you see there that could be changed that also would benefit the entire community. 
Um, so I'm just curious if you were to take that lens, you know, what are the the big differences that you see from how the school systems operate there versus here? And, you know, is is there something presently happening that's working to address that from a foundational perspective? So there's at least two questions in, in that, and that's such a such an important question, particularly because COVID has laid bare the under-resourcing of the public space, particularly education, and of mm-hmm. course health, as we have seen across the world. And in the in many African countries across the continent, in fact, a big challenge has been in the laying bare of the digital access um, gap, right? Because when schools had to close, and luckily the continent did not have as terrible a set of numbers as, as the West did, but when schools had to close, children were home and it was impossible to get technological-based tools to enable them to learn. Mm-hmm. So we still are operating in systems that are terribly, terribly under-resourced um, across the board. So it almost isn't fair to compare. What does happen there as here is that the wealth and personal capacity to pay for a solution becomes what what, uh, is resorted to. And so Mm -hmm. the kids whose parents have means uh, are able to get online tutoring and this app and the other app, while the kids who do not even have a smartphone within their household are being uh, systematically excluded. Now, that's not very different from here, where, again, Mm -hmm. during COVID, it became very clear what those gaps look like. But I'm going to go to one point that you made earlier around what are the what are the assumptions that underlie some of the language that is used in addressing Africa's global mobility? I'll make two points there. Uh, I spoke once to a former president of a leading global foundation about brain drain. And mm. what he said, he is... Um, his foundation is very big and well-known in education. And what he said was that there is almost an assumption in the global spaces, and it's very entrenched, that educated Africans lose the right to mobility. His quote, I am butchering it, but it was around the idea that we've inherited this scarcity mentality when it comes to the African continent, that even in the finest of our institutions that work on the continent, we just cannot seem to get over that. But there is a way in which getting over that is really useful for the US itself. And I'll go down the racial conversation, but in a different way. The way I see a larger number of Africans in global universities benefiting the US is that they're coming from a very different experience than any other students just because they're coming from the African continent and they bring a richness and a type of difference that is actually enriching for America that has a real and present race problem. There were data in the in the summer of last year around what proportion of Americans have close friends across race and it's actually quite dismal and that can be traced back to much earlier and the challenges that you point out to the school system but one place where one can actively change that is at the university level. Mm -hmm. Enable problem solving across difference. Let your MBA partner be a Nigerian and and an Ivorian uh, in addition to a Pakistani. 
right? So that when you grow into a policymaking role and you're the CEO of this or other or heading X, Y, and Z foundation, you know that these individuals are representative of places that you may never have as close an insight into as you did from their own experiences. And you know that there are smart people there and that they do this and they do that. And you're easily able to get over some of the prejudices that might otherwise come attached to these various places of origin. As the world gets smaller, more global, more interdependent, it is going to be so essential that we are exposing our students to the fullness of diversity that is there globally. And I think that's going to be important. The second thing that is, is important in that same vein is that the diversity story, at least in the US, is also a story about the inclusion of black students. And while the African continent is diverse, it does have a majority black students who would be coming into our college campuses. That is something that is going to be enriching for uh, US uh, universities that are looking simultaneously to perform their function of educating, but also a social justice um, function. So I'm hopeful that this, this wind that is blowing on this issue or that is hoping to advance this issue uh, is able to make universities and other stakeholders in this space be more out of the box thinking about mm -hmm. what this diversity could do for them and what companies like ours can add. Now, I want to get to a discussion around COVID that's impacted a lot of international students over the course of the last year. You know, we saw university campuses shut. We saw mandates in some cases that if international students were going to stay in the United States, they had to attend physical in-person courses. I personally saw this happen at my university, at Santa Clara University, and the campus had been told that unless these students were going to be present for on-campus courses at least 10% of the time or a certain number of units, that the student visa would be revoked and that they might have to go home. And so I would like for you to talk for a moment about the implications of that type of action. I mean, I would imagine that it has um, impacted the perception of American universities and the minds of students that might want to attend them from a global perspective. And from my personal seat, I, I would think that it might impact their faith in those institutions, which could be a disservice to the very institutions that we're talking about, um, per your earlier comment that, you know, we need our universities to offer more interpersonal enrichment and a global feel to really be a part of the new economy that is in the 21st century. No, you're absolutely right. That's such an important question. And there was so much distress among every, you know all stakeholders who work in international education when it seemed like that would be a requirement. Thankfully, they stepped back from that requirement and enabled there to be greater flexibility by the universities about how they offer instruction, bearing in mind the fact that the students were not the ones that had changed their wish on how to be educated. The universities had had to do this in order mm -hmm. to respond to public health. But what that did, that and a number of other things that have happened in the recent, in the recent years, is to shake the faith of many who look to the US as the place where the best and the brightest come to study, there really has been a shaken, a sh that, that faith has been, has been shaken. I also think that it was already getting progressively harder when you 
graduate to get your work permit. Uh, the HB1, right? The H, yeah, the, I got that when I graduated Cornell. It's a, you get a, something called the optional practical training. And at the end of that, if a company sponsors you, you get uh, this uh, H-1B visa and gives you three years of work. It was already becoming increasingly hard. It's a bit of a lottery how, how you get that, which is a shame, Corina, because what the U.S. has managed to do over the last half a century is to attract the best talent. And the founders of incredible companies have many, many founders, large proportions, are either themselves immigrants or their parents were immigrants. The immigrant story in America is one that enables the society to regenerate and to always be at the cutting edge of innovation. It would seem that with the nationalist turn, we are forgetting that part of the privilege that America has globally of being ahead of the curve is enabled by some of that openness with who comes in through the borders and who we get to keep. And we get to choose who to keep, Mm -hmm. which is amazing. Many countries would love that. And you are seeing many countries across the globe innovating to be more attractive to talent. I mean, people are going to Canada, the UK, Australia. There's a number of places where if you graduate, there is a point system. If you have, you're under this age and you can speak this language and you have this degree, here are working papers. Start tomorrow. I mean, not quite the same, but something with much lower transactional costs than you have in the US. So I feel that what the US has in the last couple of years done, unfortunately, is to become less attractive for foreign students. And parents worry uh, on, about how we've addressed COVID, for example. And, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of concern uh, about what the U.S.'s interest is, frankly, in, in global talent. That does not stop an ambitious student from wanting to come here, but it, it makes them look broader in terms of where the options might be. So my hope is that some course correction can get us back because there is always an 18-year-old getting ready to go to school. There's always a 22-year-old getting ready to go to grad school every single day across yep. the world. And mm-hmm. so that's the luck. The luck is that young people are not scarce. Uh, what I hope is that the policy environment can be friendly to the mobility of talent into the U.S. because America benefits and so does the world. Yeah, I would completely agree. Now, have you seen that as a direct effect of this last year that students are expressing more of an interest in going to schools in the U.K., Canada and Australia, for instance, than the U.S.? So I think there is just a broader range of places to which students are applying. In the fall, we had a seminar with stakeholders who work on global education on the African continent. And Mm -hmm. part of the discussion there was around just the broader range of places that students are willing to explore or the greater reluctance that students have when they have a good U.S. offer when in previous years they would not have had that. It's Mm -hmm. going to be interesting to see now that there's a set of offers that are coming up this month and next month and students will be coming up in September when the world will be looking very different, although that will might include some of the students who deferred from last year, Mm -hmm. Um, then they will have to be part of the pool that's making choices. But it's going to be interesting to see how lasting this effect, this dampening effect uh, may have been. But, you know, there was also the fact that the global pandemic looked different Mm -hmm. uh, in America than it did elsewhere. So there was scarier. It felt scary. Even my parents in Kenya were concerned for me. I'm typically worried for them. Mm -hmm. uh, And now they were worried about me being in a red zone. You know, you guys, okay. They worried. 
So mm-hmm. I think there's a number of factors that will be very difficult to disaggregate that will affect how students choose where they land this fall. Uh, my hope is that America's capacity to self to, to heal and to move forward and be a better yeah. version of itself year after year is something that we will see happening and that will continue being attractive to people around the world. Now, one of the things we did see this past year was a, a global movement to online, which we've touched on, right? And I have personally been wondering if that impacts a, a lot of students on an international perspective. Like, might they choose to go to a school that offers an online-only program for their higher education? Is that a, a positive path for them? Or is it something that you think would pale in comparison to the international in-person experience that they might gain? That's a great question. And I think the jury is still out um, on what the opening up of online education and the making it an equal of in-person education, as opposed to, as one of my friend calls it, an unfortunate stepchild of it. Mm. Um, what might that do to the popularity of either online degrees or hybrid degrees? Mm-hmm. I know a very, very well-known um, institution that until COVID had only one master's program fully online. Mm-hmm. One. COVID forced them to have a variety of premium Mm -hmm. degrees that were previously only obtainable by showing up physically online. Now, you'd still have to pay exactly the same price as you would showing up physically. And that's why I say it's no longer the unfortunate stepchild that you charge a fraction of the price for. They're having to make the new argument about how it is similar to the, Mm -hmm. the physical education. But I think this is going to lead to outcomes that we cannot even start to envision now. We're still in very, very early days of this. One of the schools that I'm really excited about what they're doing with their online education is Minerva Institutes, because Mm -hmm. they are, if if your listeners have not encountered Minerva, they should dash first thing and and read about them. Mm -hmm. They basically are reinventing the selective university. The founder was asking himself, what would you need to do if you were to recreate a Harvard, but with a social justice mission, but without selecting for proxies of wealth, all the things that you were mentioning earlier that are problematic Mm -hmm. with higher education today? And the answer is this product that they have called Mm. Minerva that Mm. is fascinating, including being pandemic proof, I would argue, because they are already having one of the most advanced products for delivering higher education online. Because classes on Zoom isn't higher education online. No. That you know, it, no. it is. That's not what <laughs> Zoom was for. And so, products like Minerva's Forum, which is what their product is called for online education, is absolutely inspiring. And what that might do. I dragged uh, one of their founders into a conversation with African universities in the fall because I would love him to expand the imagination of some of the colleagues on the African continent who are resource constrained, uh, Mm -hmm. who could enroll more students if online capacity was there, where COVID is impacting the the universities as it is. But I Mm -hmm. see that as something that I can't, it's very hard to know where we go with this, but we go to really interesting places that are wonderful to, to observe. The second thing I was going to say about that is the online only degree starts the conversation in some quarters, particularly in the global north around the credentialing and the disaggregation of the university, the equivalent of should you buy a Mariah Carey album or should you, you know, stream a Mariah Carey song, right? 
the university is telling you here is the CD, while the 21st century is saying, oh, you don't need the CD. You can just stream one song that you like. Mm. And so the breaking <laughs> apart of the degree is something that is a concern in, in a number of education circles. What is true about many students on the African continent that I encounter is that the credential is still a very important signal. The degree is still a very important signal. And it matters where it's coming from, particularly if you're going abroad to get it, because mm -hmm. there are very few other ways that you're signaling to an employer that you can be able to do this bunch of things that they're expecting you to do. In some point in the future, at some point, there might be a way that employers have better way of working with universities so that universities can better assess and therefore better prepare the students for the world of work, where what is being assessed isn't, do you have a, uni a, a university degree from Cornell, but do you have these three competencies, right? But we, right. we're not there yet. And I think for many, many students in the global South, the degree is still premium. And yeah. because the degree at a global level comes with a network, the physical degree is still going to be important. But your point is so important because I have heard the comparison of the disaggregation to the music industry. I've also mm -hmm. heard the comparison of the degree to, you know, going couture gown shopping in Paris, you know, that's what a physical education in the Ithaca campus of Cornell is going to be, while everybody else is just going to do it online or by hybrid. And, and that's how the, the, the mass education is going to happen. And I don't know, I'm just really grateful to be alive at this time in yeah. this sector that is facing so much change and to be observing all the possibilities. Yeah, I will say um, as a hybrid student, right, like I'm in an MBA program that is offered on campus and in person. And one of the interesting things that has happened over the course of this year is that many of the courses that were only taught in person were forced to go online. And so everybody had to adapt and scramble and some, you know, initially hated it and then loved it and others had the reverse experience. So it just was kind of all over the map, dependent, I think, largely on what the course content was, who the professor was and the size of the class. I had the joy of being in a course um, taught by Robert Eberhardt, who has since moved on to Stanford. He is a social benefit entrepreneur, has a very interesting history, and one day I'll be bringing him on this podcast as well. But we were a class of only seven students. And because we were a class of only seven students, you know, our Zoom sessions were pure discussion back and forth, bantering about of ideas, talking about the case studies, and really engaging in, in pretty close to the same way that we might have in person because of the class size. And then I heard from other students who were forced to go from the in, in person to online in larger classes that really had some negative things to say because they felt like, Zoom was a poor red-haired stepchild was one term thrown around or that it it didn't enable them to collaborate as well. And I think a lot of that probably reflects back on, on the class size. So one of the things I think we're all going to be forced to reckon with in this world where we go into this online space 
is it may cost just as much to offer a really high quality online education as it does to offer one in person if you have to keep that really tight and a smaller class size in order to give the same quality of education. Some of the courses I take are purely automated, and then we have discussion groups and projects and things like that. Um, and the platforms are getting better and better. Like I've only been in this system for close to two years now, and I've seen improvements almost every six months in how the system is run. It's fantastic. So um, I'm very encouraged to see where we head. I think this could be a way for more students to gain access from all over the globe to cross collaborations with international schools and those of a similar caliber to Santa Clara University. It's the oldest university in all of California. If you were able to go back to earlier days in Kenya and do it all over again, knowing what you know now, what might you have done differently? That is a hard question because I am exactly where I should be. I think the journey there was interesting and had all the stresses of being young and wanting to do things now and yesterday that every young person has. I think the thing that I recall was that I always thought it mind-numbingly dull to work in the plumbing of things, things like education, things like finance. Those were not things that got me excited. What got me excited was to be in the thick of the big political question, the big health question, the areas where you're really thinking about the capacity of countries with weak system to respond in whatever system that might be. What is really interesting to me is that I then found myself very consumed by the people in the room. You know, why the policy making in this rooms that I wanted to be in looked the way it did. And that drove me to the plumbing. It, we need to fix the plumbing. The way you fix the plumbing is to get more people like me to be winning more of those lotteries, except they shouldn't be lotteries. They should be objectively, if you're smart and you get into this school, you should be able to fund it and go there from which you will be hired to run that program or to work in that company. And so if I were to look back, if I were to know what, if I knew then what I know now around just how essential the plumbing is for the mm. working of the whole system, perhaps I would be less judgmental about plumbing, um, <laughs> which is what I was much earlier. But I also think that I would have had less heart, I would have had less heartbreak around how my various choices turned out. I do remember shortly after Cornell being shortlisted for the Young Professional Program at the World Bank and an equivalent at the UN Development Program. I was really young. I don't think I should have been there in the first place, but I was interviewed and I thought, oh my God, this is my dream scenario. And I did not get either. And I thought mm. my life was over. Like, how is it possible that I do not get into these places where mm. I'm supposed to be getting into to change things? The path that I ended up taking was so much more interesting. And I think there's a mistake we have, those of us who are young and care about the world, of wanting to take the shortest path to that, while in fact, the longer path has so much to learn that you bring in and it enables you to solve whatever your issue ends up being with so much more lateral connections that you otherwise mm -hmm. wouldn't have had. I think if I had entered the UN at 21, it would have been to my detriment, frankly. Mm -hmm. But if you had told me this then that it's it's good for you that you're not getting this post, I would have been, you know, I would not have <laughs> believed you. So I think knowing the things that I know now, I would just follow the journey, follow the journey. That would be the advice I would give my younger self. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I find myself reflecting on um, similar moments of my own life where I felt like I didn't get something that I really wanted. <laughs> and the Only journey. to discover that you're yeah. better off without it, right? Yeah, right. So um, let's fast forward five years for a moment. Um, what is the change you will have created with 8B Education Investments? I would love to be closer and closer to that ideal where the African student walks into a bank in Abuja or Kampala or Nairobi and is able to get a loan to go study whatever they want to study because we know how to underwrite that risk and we know that we can bank on the pathway they're taking because they are our best and brightest and their pathways should be enabled by financing. So what we're putting in place are building blocks towards that inclusion and I would love to see us get closer to that vision in a five-year time frame. Yeah. So what can our listeners do to support that effort to ensure your success? Oh, that's such a kind question. I think it's really important that the world knows that this is a problem to be solved. Going back to where we started, which is we think of the African continent as a place of war and disease. And when you think about education, you think of it as let's give some kids some literacy and some school uniforms, and that's where it ends. Mm -hmm. uh, while it is a continent with just as much capacity as anywhere else. And to be able to define the fullest realization of African potential as something that can be invested in is something that we really want people to open their eyes to. We also, so I think what you're doing, Corinna, in telling stories like ours that then get to new ears that are not yet in our converted circles mm -hmm. is really important. Um, we will be in a fundraise in Q2 so people can join our mailing list on our website and they can mm. be, you know, if people are in the impact investing space and, and they are interested in how you make transformative multi-generational change. Uh, these are the kinds of, you know, that's the kind of change that our, our product has. But I think there's something more tangible. We just, uh, in the last 24 hours, opened up our um, ladder platform. We call it our ladder platform, but it's an information and mentoring service that we want to provide for African students who are looking for opportunities in the, who are looking to advance their education globally. Either they are already in schools globally or they're looking to apply. We're looking for mentors, people who are good at writing essays or, you know, mm -hmm. resume review, just mentoring African students and being part of the information ecosystem that starts to level the playing field for those smart students who are going to have to figure out what is an SAT and where do you take it and, and so mm -hmm. on. Mm -hmm. um, we would very much welcome uh, people to sign on to our website. Uh, it's just open in the last 24 hours it's you know it's going to be in better phase for a while so if any of your listeners are interested in in um, being the tangibly event. involved yeah. please by all means they should have and is that a different site or is it still part of the 8B website? It's, it's a subdomain of the 8B website. So when they go to the 8B website, they will see services, there'll be financing and there'll be ladder. They can just click okay. on ladder and get into the system and then, you know, sign on. And in due course, there will be students for them to support, you know, helping with the mechanics of succeeding yeah. in the world when you're exceptional, but you come from the village, right? Well, I will absolutely include direct links to that in our show notes. Perfect. So people don't have to look around. I think I'll put myself up there as well, because Please that's something do. I'd absolutely love to do. That's now, right. before we close the show, I like to ask a couple 
frank questions, just about the tips that you would provide to a budding activist who sees a problem and might want to try to fix it on their own in a new way. What advice would you give to that person? I think respecting lived experience is so important. So the best way to solve a problem is the problem that you've experienced or the problem that has been explained to you by those who have lived the problem, right? What I find to be challenging and having worked for many years in international development as I have, what I find to be challenging is when kid from Ithaca ups and goes to, you know, save some people in Kisumu, Kenya. Like nobody is waiting to be saved. Whatever you come up with is well-intentioned. It's not likely to be what is needed. Having some humility and finding the people who have the challenges that inspire you and working through them instead of looking to flag plant is something that I would wish for many young activists because I feel like the graveyard of good intentions gone wrong is, is big. And mm. to get around that is really take a step back. What is your experience? What is the pain point that you see? Or what are the allies that you can create whose pain points you might help alleviate in a manner that they, in a manner that they suggest? I think yeah. that's one. The second thing that I would advise is, can I suggest books? Of course. <laughs> Let's read. I would suggest getting very familiar with some of the challenges in the bigger doing good world. So there's a couple of people that are essential reading for that. I would say that the Anand Giridharadas book from two years, three years ago, maybe called Winners Take All is a good provocative read. I would suggest that Rob Reich's um, Just Giving is essential, essential, essential reading for anybody who's looking to work particularly through philanthropy. And a lot of the impact is done through that tool. Uh, is absolutely essential reading. Darren Walker at Ford Foundation released a book called something like Between Generosity and Justice or From Generosity to Justice. Darren Walker, I would highly, highly recommend uh, grabbing that. And these are books that take ideas that we all have, they're in the air, but really put them in accessible ways that challenge some of your assumptions, challenge some of your thinking, and make you a critical person, critical in, by that I mean an interrogating person when you're entering these spaces, understanding the power with which you come, understanding the power of the institutions that we might somehow assume to be inherently good, thinking about how all that interacts with the problems that we need to solve and then lead to either bad or good outcomes. So I would, I would suggest that for your, your young activist audience. Well, that's some great reading. Um, taking the 30,000 foot view, what do you want our audience to remember after our conversation today? The soundbite or takeaway you'd want them to carry with them into their day? Whenever you hear anybody saying this is the solution to a problem, be very, very skeptical. Education is a tool, even in itself, it comes with a symphony of solutions. There isn't one thing that is going to be the silver bullet to help us address the challenges in that sector, but it's also one lane within a broader set of instruments. Some of them might include governance and politics, something that you and I were discussing earlier before we began the podcast. Some of them might include other 
things. But all this is part of what one needs to have social transformation. So be wary of simplistic solutions, just as you should be wary of monocausal explanations for social conditions. And such an approach would hopefully make you a more informed engager in the issues that you seek to to address. Well, I think that is purely wisdom. The reality is if we just gobble down what we're spoon fed, we're not learning anything. So, you know, we need to be skeptical when we hear, oh, I have the one path. This is the one way. The reality is there are so many ways to solve a problem. And often the facets of that problem are deeper than we initially understand, right? So I completely agree. Lydia, I want to thank you so much for being my guest today and for having this really enthralling conversation about education and access. It's really been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much, Corinna. I loved it. I will provide links to 8B Education Investments in our show notes, along with the mentorship program ladders. I'll detail Lydia Camunto Busire's impressive biography so each of you can read a little bit more about her and perhaps seek out some of the written work that she has produced. Now, I'd like to invite you to act. As I've often said, it doesn't have to be a Herculean effort. It can be as simple as sharing this podcast with some friends, or you could go to 8B's website and sign up to be a mentor for someone who needs a little support on their own path forward. Thank you listeners now and always for being a part of this pod and this community, because together we really can do so much more. Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good. 